Well, last week we began our series on on marriage, and uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that his disciples would have a righteousness that exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. One of the the differences between Jesus' disciples and the scribes and the Pharisees would be how they honored their wedding vows. You see, divorce was a big problem in Jesus' day. Divorce was uh, an easy thing to do, and one all, all one had to do was write a certificate of divorce. And most people, most of the, the religious people in Jesus' day believed that that divorce was justified for any reason at all. If your wife burnt your dinner or embarrassed you in front of your friends, you were free in their mind to file for divorce. And in cases like that, both parties were free to remarry. But Jesus taught that divorce and remarriage actually leads to adultery. It was a form of adultery. And so in Matthew 5, verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The disciples of Jesus Christ would hold to a higher righteousness, one that would not lead to easy divorce. In other words, Jesus' disciples would have a high view of marriage, and they would honor their marriage vows. Last week, as we kind of entered into this series, we saw that marriage was designed by God, that God is the one who came up with the idea of marriage. And God Himself was the minister at the first wedding ceremony. God created marriage. We saw that marriage involves a a male and a female, that it was one man and one woman. We saw that marriage involves this man and this woman committing themselves to each other. And they enter into a covenant with each other. And they promise to live together as husband and wife so long as they both shall live. The substance of this commitment is summarized well in the traditional wedding vows. And I read you these last week. It's These are just the the traditional wedding vows. I take you to be my wedded wife or husband. To have and to hold from this day forward. To share with you God's plan for our lives. United in Christ. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish according to God's Word so long as we both shall live. All these things I pledge to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are kind of traditional, or at least these are the, the wedding vows that I use, but, but for sure, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. Those are basically the traditional wedding vows. This is the commitment that wedding in, uh, that marriage involves. And the biblical word, as we saw last week, for this commitment is translated to hold fast or 
uh, to be joined. And the idea is literally to cling to. And of course, this comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so when a man and a woman enter into a marriage covenant, God then joins them together. And in Scripture, this is called the one flesh union. The two become one flesh. And this means they become family. They're united together by God as family. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 19. And I just might as well look at this yourself. Matthew 19 and verse 4. Here's where Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus quoted Genesis 2.24 and Matthew 19 and verse 4, and it says there, He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let man not separate. And so the first marriage was between Adam and Eve. And that was before the fall of man. That was before sin entered the world. Before sin, God's plan was one man, one woman for life. And before sin, there was no divorce. After sin, God's ideal is, is still the standard, but divorce happens in the world. Without sin, there would be no divorce. Divorce always involves sin. Divorce itself is sin, and, and we're going to look into that in, in later messages in this series, but divorce itself is, in most cases, is sin. And the reason marriage ends in divorce and the reason people want out of their marriage is because of sin. And so what I'm trying to say here is that sin makes marriages hard. It makes marriages difficult. Marriage is hard because it involves the joining together of two sinners. And the close proximity of two sinful people is sure to create friction and tension. You know, just think about, and, and you could turn if you want to Galatians chapter 5.19, but think about the works of the flesh from Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And Paul lists there what the kinds of, of works that come from the flesh. These are, these are the kinds of works that come from men and women who are either unsaved or who are not walking by the Spirit. And he says there, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now think about how difficult these things, these works, make marriage. 
You know, think about enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy in the, in the context of marriage where two people are so closely joined together by the Lord. Those things will wreak havoc in a marriage. And instead of being one, sharing life together, these works, these divisions and enmity and strife and jealousy makes marriage more like being at war than being at one. And one of the works in verse 20 I think is especially prominent, and that is idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is valuing something other than God. And one of the works... Sorry, idolatry is when when I, I want something so strongly that I become willing to sin in order to get that thing. And really, as, as we've talked about before, anything in our life can become idolatrous, really anything. And in James chapter 4, James asks this piercing question, where do fights come and where do quarrels come from? And he answers, here it is, James 4, 1, what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so idolatrous passions and desires wreak havoc in marriage. They're the cause of fights and quarrels and conflicts and tensions. And these desires, they don't even have to be sinful in and of themselves. For example, one partner could desire a clean house. Any of you have a, a partner like that who desires a clean house? Another partner could desire to come home from work in their dirty work clothes and just take off those clothes and immediately go to the shower and, and they can clean up later, right? They, that doesn't bother them one little bit. And something as, as simple as that can cause fights and quarrels and conflicts in the marriage because those desires are elevated to the place where I must have a clean house or I must have that shower before I tidy up. And so those kinds of things, innocent in and of themselves, when, when they're held above the desire to love God and to love your spouse, they'll result in sinful attempts to get what you want. And I think if anyone in this room has been married for any amount of time, you have seen this in one area of your life or another. And really all I'm trying to point out right now is that sin and idolatry make marriage difficult. And it's no wonder then that marriages don't last, even especially outside in the world, but even sometimes sadly in Christian homes. And so since the fall, marriage really has this against it, that, that there's these, this, the sinfulness of man, that two sinners are brought together. And really all relationships, if you think about it even broader, all relationships have been made difficult because of sin in the world. But marriage especially has become hard. Because in marriage, two sinners, again, are brought so closely together. And so the, the covenant of marriage is put to the test. Now the answer is definitely not to abandon marriage. Our culture is doing that more and more. People are abandoning marriage and, and that is not good. Marriage is a, a key element for a healthy society. 
Whenever family breaks down, society soon follows and breaks down. And so if we lose the family, we really lose society. The answer to the difficulty of marriage is not abandoning marriage. God designed and instituted marriage and that institution remains even though sin is in the world. But God designed and instituted marriage and He wants it to continue even after the fall. And so we could ask ourselves then this morning, well, what is the answer? What is the answer to sin in the world in our marriages? What is the most helpful thing for a married couple? What is the most helpful thing for a married couple? What is calculated to most help a married couple to keep their wedding vows and overcome the divisive nature of sin and idolatry? And what I want to do this morning is I want to share what I believe is the most helpful thing for a Christian marriage. I want to share what is the most helpful thing, what I believe to be the most helpful thing. And if you can grasp in your heart what I share today, I believe it will transform your marriage for God's glory and for your good. You see, God designed marriage to point to something even greater than marriage itself. Your marriage, if you are married, is designed by God to declare or to point to or to illustrate another marriage. Your marriage is meant to illustrate the marriage of Christ and the church. And last week I I pointed out that the Bible both begins and ends with marriage. It begins with human marriage, Adam and Eve, and it ends with the marriage of Christ and the church. And I want to explain this for you today by expanding on on just a one-sentence summary of really the whole message this morning. And so here's the sentence, and, and you've already got that in your outlines if you have one of those outlines. It's this, marriage is an institution which illustrates the gospel, and the gospel in turn impacts the marriage. And so again, marriage is an institution which illustrates the gospel, And the gospel in turn impacts the marriage. And we'll break this down into three sections today. First of all, we're going to look at the institution. This is really mostly review from last week, but the institution of marriage. Marriage is an institution which illustrates the gospel. And last week we saw that marriage was designed by God. We saw that it involves one man and one woman. We saw that marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a a commitment to one another that vows are made and God is the witness of those vows and that that commitment is a commitment until death do us part. Or it's a commitment as long as we both shall live. We saw that this relationship is called a one flesh, that God joins a couple together as one flesh. In other words, they become a family unit. And from that moment on, they are now to live together as one flesh. Marriage from then on is meant to be a sharing of life together, a sharing of the total life together. The husband and wife are meant to live together as one. They're to be one in every area of their lives. 
And they're to serve the Lord together, each one doing their part, contributing the gifts to the common goals of the one family. Now, I need to just say somewhere in this series that physical intimacy is only authorized by God within the safety of the covenant relationship of marriage. Physical intimacy outside of marriage is sin. Inside of marriage, it's a gift from God. Inside of marriage, sex is a wonderful expression of the union that God made between the man and the woman. But outside of marriage, it's a distortion of God's good gift that will only bring harm and ultimately God's judgment. Now this institution which God designed was designed to illustrate the Gospel. And to see that, I I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. The institution which God designed was designed to illustrate the Gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, and and really starting in verse 15, really first 15 to chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul is addressing believers to be careful about about how they walk or really how they live. So look at 5.15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So look carefully how you walk. That, that mean, that's the idea is how you live. Be careful how you live this life. Don't be a fool in this life. And one way to walk wise is by being filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says. We need to be people who are controlled by the Spirit. We should be people under the influence, not of alcohol, but of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so we could ask then, well, what does it look like to be filled by the Spirit? What does that look like? And the next verses describe how being filled with the Spirit looks. Verse 19, so be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so according to Paul, we could summarize the Spirit-filled life like this. It's worship, thankfulness, and submission. Right? With, with all of those, there's five participles there, but the, the first couple just involve worship, then he talks about thankfulness, then he talks about submission. And submission is to be done out of fear for Christ, out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a high view of Christ causes us to submit to those who Christ has put over us. And then Paul goes from there and he kind of explains submission in verses 22 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. And he starts in verse 22 and he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
And then skip down to chapter 6 and verse 1. He talks to the children and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then in chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And so in each case, Paul addresses first the, the person who's called to submission, and then he addresses the person who is, who is called to, to lead that person. So wives, husbands, children, parents, and then bond servants, and then masters. And in each case, as he calls on a, a certain party to submit to somebody else, he points out that this is to be done, again, out of reverence for Christ, as, as looking to Christ. And so he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And children, obey your parents in the Lord. And again, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Now our focus today is the marriage relationship. But notice even before we see what what Paul says about the marriage relationship, notice that it's going to take the work of the Holy Spirit for us to live out what we're commanded here. In order for a, a godly and good marriage, we need the power of the Spirit. And it's only by the power of the Spirit that we can put off the works of the flesh that create division and dissension in our lives and in our relationships. And, and by that power of the Spirit, then we can put on the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, and peace, which makes for harmony and, and godliness and goodness in our marriages. And so look what Paul says then to the wives and husbands in, in this context of this, this key relationship of marriages. As we walk by the Spirit in our marriages, this is what Paul envisions for our lives. This is what God envisions for our lives. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Now did you see as we read that, that that Paul viewed marriage as a picture of Christ and the church? See, marriage is a wonderful, glorious, and beautiful institution. But one of the most important things that we learn from the text that I just read 
is the truth that marriage is not wonderful, glorious, and beautiful in and of itself. Marriage, as it was originally intended by God, is a picture and it points to something infinitely greater than itself. In verse 31, Paul quotes from the first wedding text, which we looked at last week, Genesis 2.24. And so in verse 21, he quotes that and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so marriage is a divinely ordained picture or illustration of Christ and the church. And throughout this passage, Paul speaks about the relationship between the husband and the wife as a parallel to the relationship between Christ and the church. Verse 23, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And again in verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. The church is one body with Christ even as the husband and wife are one flesh. And so the Apostle is declaring that marriage was designed by God from the beginning of time to be a portrait of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. You see, marriage doesn't exist as an end in itself. God created marriage most ultimately so that He, so that he could have a tangible, concrete picture by which He would display the glory of the Gospel. And that's what I, I called the, the message today is the ultimate meaning of marriage. And the ultimate meaning of marriage is that, that it is a, a picture of the gospel, a, a picture of Christ and His church. And so this text teaches us then that if we are to understand what marriage is, we must first understand the relationship of Christ and the church. To understand marriage, we must understand the gospel. And that's what I'm going to look at next in number two in our outline this morning. Number two is the illustration. So we've seen the the institution. The institution is an illustration of the gospel. So let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk now about the good news of salvation. And if you're here this morning and you're not married yet, this is a great time for you to check in. You see, you can't just check out of a marriage sermon because this is important because Marriage is intended to be a picture of the good news of salvation, and all of us need to know and understand the good news of salvation. And so the gospel begins with God Himself. God Himself is the Creator of all things. And this God eternally exists as three persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God has revealed Himself to us. And in His goodness, He made us so that we could know Him. He made us in His image with a a unique ability to know Him. He made us 
in order to enjoy Him and to be in a relationship with Him. And God the Father wanted to give, in His creation mandate, He wanted to give a a love gift to God the Son. He wanted to give God the Son a holy and pure bride from among the human race that they created. But you and I, through our ancestor and representative Adam, we sinned by rebelling against God. And as a result, we and the the rest of humanity fell from our state of communion with God into a state of enmity with Him. We were all born into this world as sinners. We all, as sinners, worship our own desires and our own selves. We worship anything other than God. We do not love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as God commands. And so we are sinful. We break God's laws. We do not keep His commandments and we rebel against Him. We are not the pure and holy bride that the Father wishes to present His Son. And in fact, because of our sin, all of humanity is rightly banished from the purity of God's presence into eternal torment away from Him. The wages of our sin is the spiritual death of eternal separation from God, and that is hell itself. But God came up with a plan to rescue the Son's bride. The Son would become a man and rescue His bride. He would give His life to rescue her from her sins. He would give His life for her sake. And so the Son of God took upon Himself a fully human nature And He came to earth as a man. He added to Himself humanity and came to earth as fully God and fully man. And He was born into this world with a human nature and given the name Jesus. And as a man, He lived a sinless life. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He lived a life entirely worthy of the holiness and purity of His Father. He lived a life that you and I were commanded to live but failed to live. This Son of God, Jesus Christ, He never sinned. Not in His words, not in His thoughts, not in His actions, not a single sin in His entire life. And He fully met the righteous standard of His Father. And that standard is perfection, perfect holiness. But get this, He not only lived for His bride, but He also died for her. He went to the cross as the bride's substitute. He died on her behalf. He died in her place. Jesus laid down His life as the payment for the penalty that our sins deserved. And on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. He took the judgment that we deserve for our sin. And after He died on the third day, He rose again from the dead. Because it was impossible for death to hold Him. He rose from the dead. He killed death by dying. And now all who receive Him by faith can be saved from their sins because of what He accomplished. He, when we repent, when we turn from our sin and trust in Christ for righteousness, we are given the gift of eternal life. 
And all those that Jesus redeemed are called the church, whom Scripture calls the bride of Christ. And this people who because of sin is entirely unworthy to be presented to the Son is purified by the Son Himself. And so the dowry for Jesus' bride cost Him nothing less than His life. But in His abundant grace, Jesus willingly paid that price and He paid it for the church, for His wife, the bride of Christ. As it says in Ephesians again, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. And at the end of all things, when Jesus returns to set up His kingdom on earth and rule over creation and righteousness, the Father will present to His Son, verse 27, the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And though that celebration remains a future event, we as the church are Christ's betrothed. And so we love Him and we joyfully serve Him now. We submit to His loving, sacrificial leadership and we experience His grace and love each day until He returns. He has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And despite even our unfaithfulness to Him, He will never break the covenant that He died to institute with us. And that is what marriage points to. That is what marriage is about. Marriage is an institution created by God for the specific purpose of making much of Him by magnifying the relationship of the covenant-keeping grace that exists between Christ and His bride, the church. Now this understanding of marriage as an illustration of the Gospel really should have a massive impact on our marriages should have a massive impact. And this is number three in our outline. We're just calling it the impact. Number three, the impact. What impact should this have on our marriages? How does seeing marriage as a picture of the gospel change how we function in our marriages? And I just want to give you a few things this morning. First of all, if God designed marriage as a picture of the gospel, then marriage means more than the marriage itself. You know, my marriage means more than Jody and I being happy in our marriage, although that's a, a good thing, but it, it means more than that. My marriage, our, our marriages are supposed to proclaim a truth, and that is the truth about the gospel. You see, it's not about me or it's not about Jody. Our, our marriage points to something higher than us. Your marriage points to something higher than you. It's designed to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel in the illustration. And so when I love Jody, I tell the truth about Christ's love for the church. And when Jody submits to my leadership, not only does she glorify God with her obedience to Christ, she also tells the truth about the, the, the church's delight in submitting to Christ. And so when our marriage functions the way God intended, it glorifies God as an illustration of the Gospel. And so what an amazing reality this is that God designed marriage, 
your marriage so that, that we as image bearers of God represent God and the gospel in how we relate to one another. Now, if you are married, I, I want you to ask about everything in your marriage. Is this decision or is this way of relating to one another? Is, is this way of speaking to one another? Whatever is going on in your marriage, ask about your marriage. Is this painting an accurate picture of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church? Or more simply put, is, is our marriage telling the truth about Jesus Christ? Is our marriage telling the truth about Jesus Christ? And so can you see how this should motivate us to serve the Lord by serving our spouse? Everything about your marriage, including your intimacy and everything in marriage is designed to glorify God. And so marriage then is not an idol. It's not something simply for you or me to, to enjoy or to be happy. It's really marriage is now transformed into an opportunity to worship God. Everything in our marriage is now, is now points beyond ourselves as, as something that we can do to honor and glorify God in our marriage. And so every, every part of our life together then becomes this illustration that, that it becomes an act of worship. And so it's not simply about me responding to Jody or Jody responding to me, but we're painting a picture of Christ's love for the church and the church's joyful Submission to Christ. And so marriage is now transformed into an opportunity to worship God. It points to something higher than ourselves. Secondly, a second impact is really related to this. And and we're going to look at this more briefly in the next couple of sermons. But I I just want to point you out to it briefly today. It seems, according to Ephesians 5, that our specific roles in marriage are in view in, in this picture of, of Christ in the church. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands are to lead their families as Christ leads and acts as head of the church. And so we as husbands are to give ourselves up. We're to, to lay down our lives in love for our wives. And wives as well are called to submit even as we, the church, submit to Christ. And so wives are then an illustration of how the church submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't we submit to Christ joyfully? Isn't it a a privilege and an honor to have the Lord Jesus Christ as our head? Well, in the same way, wives are to submit to their husbands and and show what a joy it is to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by submitting to their husbands, they're really submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ who is head over them. Next time we'll, we'll look more at, at men's and women's roles, but, but a, a third impact that, that this should have on our marriages is that since our marriages point to the gospel, we need to remember the gospel in our marriages. You see, just as Christ was gracious to you while you were a sinner, so you should be gracious to your spouse when they sin or when they do something that you don't prefer. You see, showing grace to one another is so important in our marriages. Sometimes we need to show grace for things that aren't even sin. We Don't demand your preferences from your spouse. 
Seek to honor them above yourself. Seek to honor your spouse above yourself. Put their preferences above your preferences. Serve them even if you feel like they don't deserve it. Model the gospel in your marriage. And a fourth impact is that the the other side of being gracious is remember that you are your spouse's best friend in their fight against sin. Being gracious means that oftentimes you will overlook sin in your spouse, but it also means that you will confront sin when necessary. Do it wisely and and do it gently, but we're called to do it. And, And often we don't see our sin as clearly as our spouse does. And, and so our, our spouse coming alongside can help us to see our sin much more clear. And so marriage can be a huge blessing in our growth in Christ-likeness when we're faithful to our partner in that way. No one will bring out sin like your spouse, and no one can help you to fight against sin like your spouse. And so marriage is an institution which illustrates the Gospel And the gospel then in turn should impact the marriage. So we've seen the institution of the gospel or institution of marriage that this is something that God has designed, that God has created. And he created it, number two, as a illustration of the gospel. And that illustration of the gospel then should impact our marriage. And so in closing then, I just want to Talk to those of you who are here this morning. Maybe there's some of you here that haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't believed in the good news of the Gospel. And I would want to just call you this morning to believe this Gospel. This good news of salvation is the only way that you can be made right with the Holy God. Only through Jesus Christ, only through faith in Him can you be reconciled to God so that you can have a relationship with God. And what you need to do is is believe the good news of the Gospel and turn away from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, in closing, I just want to speak to those of you who are married. I just want to remind you to honor God in your marriages. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ loved the church, give your life up for your wife. She is one flesh with you. She is as your own body. And wives, I would ask you to honor God in your marriage by submitting to your husbands and let them lead that. And we'll, we'll talk about what that means next time, but it means giving all of your gifts at the disposal of your husband and allowing him to lead you and, and guide you as a, as a family. Somebody at the end of the day needs to make the, the final decision about the direction of the family. And so I would call you wives to submit to your husbands as you do to Christ for the glory of God. And for those of you who aren't married today, I just want to give something for you. Titus 2 and verse 10 says that we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so even if you aren't married today, I would call you to adorn the doctrine of the gospel to, to be, you know, you can, you can show an image of the gospel to the world around you, even though you're not married and you don't have that illustration, but by living like the Lord Jesus Christ and by honoring him in your life, you can shine God's glory and give him glory through your life. And so marriage is an institution which illustrates the gospel. And in turn, the gospel should impact our marriages. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for 
just what you've done in the, in the marriage institution. We thank you for the illustration that it is. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to honor you in our marriages. We know we can only do it by the power of the Spirit. We pray that you would help us to honor you in our lives if we're not married. That you would help us by the Spirit to be like Christ. And we pray for those that are here that aren't saved, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would cause them to recognize their sin, to turn from it and to turn to you. And we pray all of these things for your glory. And we ask as well that you'd help us as we continue in song now. Help us to praise your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.